Job chapter 3, all of uh, Job chapter 3. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden. Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest but trouble comes. In the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the most uh, common questions in the world is, if there is a God, why then does he allow evil? And why does the righteous suffer? Throughout the history of the church, uh, there is a long list of martyrs who have suffered and died for the sake of Christ. Uh, Not only that, but many of us have witnessed the suffering of both young and old, and we wonder why. Why is this happening to such good people? There are some here who have probably suffered and you wonder why. What is the point of all of this? Well, this is the point that Job has reached in his grief and pain. And he got to this place in stages. He lost everything, including his children. And initially he responded with both grief and the worship of God. Then he was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And all he had left was a broken piece of pottery to scrape himself with as he sat on a trash heap. That is when his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But again he responded, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
But now there is a sudden change. He has spent some time alone, sitting on a trash heap, and who shows up? Three of his friends. And these friends would sit with him for seven days without speaking a word to him. They were no help to Job. They mourned him as if he was already dead. They were just waiting for the funeral. And after seven days of sitting there, and after months of sitting there alone, his patience began to grow thin. And so he opened his mouth. And when he opened his mouth, we get a different side of Job than we get back in chapters 1 and 2. No, he didn't curse God to his face and die, but he came pretty close. You can imagine that uh, Satan was watching with excitement and anticipation, waiting for him to fall. See, chapter 3 has puzzled the minds of Christians and scholars over the years because this sounds like a different Job. He doesn't sound like the hero of the story, and much less like a hero of the faith. Now, before we jump to conclusions on how Job responded, let us consider why chapter 3 is here. We have a faithful and triumphant Job in chapters 1 and 2, a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Then you come to chapter 3. What is God trying to teach us here? Well, first, what God is trying to teach us is that Job is not the ultimate hero of the story. Yes, Job foreshadows our ultimate hero who later comes in the flesh, but Job is still imperfect. Just like every other type of Christ in the Bible, from David to Solomon, Moses, he is still imperfect. The ultimate hero of every book of the Bible is always God. It teaches us that we shouldn't walk away from reading Job being impressed solely by him and saying, look at how faithful Job was. But rather, look at how faithful our God is. Look at how God upheld Job throughout the book and how he didn't destroy him. Secondly, God is teaching us that although believers never completely fall away from Christ, Yet when darkness falls upon them, they do mourn and lament over their dark circumstances. Like the title of the book by David Murray, Christians Get Depressed Too. See, there is a false version of Christianity out there, probably the most popular version of Christianity, called triumphalism. You find this in both evangelical as well as reformed circles. It leads to a self-righteousness that looks down on others for their quote-unquote lack of faith, especially during a crisis situation. It believes that faith cures you of all grief and sorrow in this life. A triumphalist doesn't believe in the reality of the paradox that the Christian is one who mourns, as Jesus explained, while at the same time is one who is filled with with supernatural joy. And this false version of Christianity prevents us, as it did with Job's friends, they were all triumphalists, it prevents us to sympathize with others when they are going through grief and trial. It is a failure to realize that as long as we live in this world, the cross of sorrow and the victory 
of spiritual joy go hand in hand. They are not mutually exclusive. But this false version of Christianity is another form of the health and wealth prosperity gospel that teaches as long as you have faith, you'll be able to face anything with a smile. Now just get it together. All your problems are going to go away. If not, then it's all your fault. This is the direction of Job's three friends and their advice later on in the book. You're not believing hard enough. And they say, if you're a Christian, you'll never suffer from anxiety or uh, depression or that. You'll never have suicidal thoughts. Then you read Job chapter 3. That idea falls apart completely. See, Job was a true believer. God affirms and confirms him time and time again as a believer. And although Job never ultimately renounces God, but he is a mixed bag and so are we. And here he has hit rock bottom. So Christians too will hit rock bottom at times. And we are called to listen to Job's agony of heart as well as the agony of our brothers and sisters. And we need to repent of this cold version of Christianity. Because thirdly, this text is teaching us that we are called to weep with those who weep and not dismiss them as being faithless. And if they do sin with their lips, that we may restore them in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul calls us to in Galatians 6. We don't know how low we will be when it is our time to weep. And oftentimes the believer's depression is far deeper because we are sensitive to the way things ought to be. Also, when we approach chapter 3, we still address what Job says, and we're not to justify everything he says, but we can understand why he says it when we read the first two chapters. We can't say that everything that he says is right, and we're not called to excuse all that he says, But we are called as fellow brothers and sisters to love him by listening to him. And also, we can learn from some of his mistakes. Because this is an example of what happens when we respond to our circumstances solely from our emotions and not from what God has promised. We try to judge God's providence based on how we're feeling instead of what God has said in his word. No, Job doesn't curse God and die, but whether or not he meant to, we don't know. Job does curse God's work of providence by first cursing his own existence. Then secondly, he would lament his own life. And thirdly, he longs for his own death. This passage is in a poetic form and it is very similar to the various laments we find throughout the scripture. A lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And again, those who deny the fact that Christians lament and go through deep seasons of sorrow are ignoring large portions of Scripture. You would have to ignore large portions of the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the book named Lamentations, and many other books. And you would have to ignore Jesus' whole life of humiliation and lamentation leading up to the cross. 
It is as if some Christians would make themselves out to be more faithful and more triumphant than Jesus himself. Because they do not suffer grief. It is a special class of Christians who are spiritually superior. But if Jesus suffered physically, spiritually, and emotionally, and if he mourned and lamented, then wouldn't his disciples suffer in a similar way, though not the same in every detail? See, the reality is is that there is grief living in a fallen world, and even more so for the faithful, because we're not home yet. Here, Job is speaking from a deep anguish of heart, and he laments, much like Jeremiah does when he was being persecuted by Peshur, the priest. He says this, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Talk about an agony of soul. Sounds much like what Job says here as we consider first the curse that he casts upon himself. It has been seven days and his friends haven't spoken a word. So after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And he does this by calling for the undoing of Genesis chapter 1. He calls for the undoing of God's creation. The creation of man, the sun and the stars, and light itself. He kind of goes backwards. Although he doesn't curse God, he curses God's work in creating him. He says, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. He curses the day which represents his birth and the night which represents his conception. And when he calls for that day which he was born, he calls it to be darkness. May God above not seek it, meaning may God not give life to that day nor mark it on the calendar of his creation as if it never happened, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Notice how he uses The same word for redeem, right? To claim, but he uses it for the opposite usage. Let clouds, the clouds of judgment, dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Darkness is often associated in scripture with the shadow of death, sadness, danger, and judgment. Like the darkness that covered Egypt in the ninth plague when Pharaoh refused to set Israel free. Or the darkness that came over the whole land for three hours until Jesus died on the cross. While light is associated with life and goodness that even God in creating day and night provided lights for both. But Job curses the light of the day of his birth with darkness. He is desiring judgment. Then he curses the night of his conception with even more darkness. We know the night is already dark, but he is saying, not even the lights that God created for the night should have shown. Let thick darkness cease it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. 
Time is a part of God's creation as he created days, months, and years. Uh, Calendars are important for keeping track of time and uh, celebrating God's providence in our lives. But he curses time here, specifically the time in which he was conceived. So those two days, his conception and his birth, were the worst days in human history, according to Job. Even though it was some of the best days for his parents. What better day is there for parents than the birth of their child? And what better night than the night of the child's conception? But he continues by saying, not even his parents should have enjoyed the night of his conception. He says, behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. I'm not going to explain what that joyful cry was. I'll leave it to the reader to understand, hopefully, the parents in the room. But he cursed the joyful occasion surrounding his own conception. Now, at this point, his friends would have been listening, and I think Job knew it. And based on where they were from, Job and his friends would have been familiar with Near Eastern religion. So to add to the darkness, he introduces a mythical creature from their storybooks. Uh, This is not saying that he promoted nor believed in Near Eastern religion, but he was influenced by it to a certain degree. He knew it. And he begins to philosophize from it, similar to how uh, C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien utilized mythical creatures in their fictional writings. Here he calls for a supernatural but demonic intervention. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan is a mythical creature believed to be a sea monster found in Near Eastern pagan storybooks. Now, this text has been used often, sometimes misused, to try to prove the existence of dinosaurs during the time of Job. Although historically, Leviathan may have referred to a real-life sea creature, But that would be to miss the point entirely in what Job is trying to communicate here. In Near Eastern literature, creation was believed to come out of chaos. There was a creation battle between gods and demons in the cosmos. And out of this chaos birthed everything that we see. And Leviathan was believed to be the embodiment of chaos and the enemy of the cosmic order. He is the equivalent of the serpent, or who we know as Satan. And according to the story, later there were sorcerers who practiced dark magic, who casted spells and incantations to call Leviathan back to consume and destroy the created order. So in other words, he was calling for judgment on his conception. But of course, it was a fool's wish. And it was just a poetic way of communicating his deep sorrow and lament. He wanted the day of his birth to be night and the night of his conception to be completely darkened. Not even the stars in the sky would shine, which God created for that very reason. He says, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. If he was never born to see the light of day, his eyes would have never seen trouble. Isn't it true that we're all born into trouble? Jesus said, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
But what do we make of this curse that Job casts on himself? Well, he thinks of himself as a man forsaken by God, and so he curses his own existence. And although we can conclude that Job does sound foolish, and all the blessings that Job knew in his communion with God far outweighs all the bad things that has happened to him, we must also remember that Satan not only attacked his possessions and his body, but he also consequently attacked his mind. Body and mind are so tied together that when one is suffering, the other soon follows. This reminds me of the movie about Martin Luther in the scene where he stood up for the boy who committed suicide. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate that scene is, but the lines the actor spoke came directly from Luther's writings on suicide where he made the ultimate culprit in suicide the devil. Now, we don't want to blame everything on the devil and become presumptuous, but we often forget that he still exists. As Reformed, we tend to do that, don't we? We forget that there is a spiritual war going on in the believer's life and we don't want to ignore it. But oftentimes to ignore it, we try to blame everything on mankind and forget that the devil exists. Because this is the question throughout the book of Job. Is Job to blame for his suffering? Is Job to blame for his suffering? Also, what Job is saying is that his existence, his creation, was inconsistent with the way God created all things to be. God created all things, and he said, all was good. But for Job, it was not all good. He felt as if God had abandoned him. So secondly, he laments his own life by asking why. He would ask why five times throughout the remainder of this chapter. But first, he asks, why is he even alive? Why wasn't he a stillborn? Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? He described the order of early life from the womb to the knees. Now, the knees are symbolic of where a child sits to be cared for and nurtured to nursing at his mother's breast. Then he begins to speak of the benefits of death. To summarize, he says that in death he would have found rest. Again, the theme of God's creation continues as he now longs for the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath day, where he will find rest. He says if he was a stillborn and died at birth, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. And then he reminds us that this is the fate of all mankind. We are all heading in the same direction toward death. This is what all people, both rich and poor, weak and strong, wicked and righteous, slave and free, have in common. At the hour of our death, all will be made equal. This is his next point. He said he would have laid down to rest with kings and counselors, the politicians of his day who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, 
These are those who spent their lives doing great things and did whatever it took to amass great wealth for themselves on earth. But all that they built now lies in ruins and what they were really investing in was the plot that they were to be buried. What he is saying is that's a whole lot of work for a tombstone. Like Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. We all die with nothing, no matter how rich and powerful we might be. Then he identifies with the weaker, the weary, the prisoners and the slaves. Remember, Job was a judge, a just man. We see this in chapter 29, if you read ahead. He was respected by the elites and defended the lowly. So he asks, why again? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? They're the wicked, referring back to the kings, the counselors and princes. And I believe he's also referring to the Sabians and the Chaldeans who stole all of his possessions in chapter 1. And of course, we would add Satan, the mastermind behind it all. In death, the wicked, all of them, cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. Speaking of himself, of course. There, the prisoners are at ease together. There, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. Again, speaking of the wicked. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Everyone dies, and all is made equal, no matter your status, and the weary will be free from Satan's clutches. What is he saying here? Well, he is stating the obvious in order to ask the question, why does the righteous suffer? And what is the point of living? He would have been better to die. Because everyone will equally die, righteous and wicked. This world that God created seems to be governed topsy-turvy. It seems like in this world, the righteous suffer while the wicked succeed. It should be the other way around. He looked at the world and, like many of us, Say today, everything's a mess. Just turn on the news. Everything's a mess. Today, good is bad and bad is good. The righteous suffer while the wicked control the narrative. On every station, by the way. He has devoted his life to the Lord and he doesn't understand why he is going through so much suffering. Today, many of you may be in the same position as Job. But we must remember all of our suffering further confirms the famous prayer by St. Augustine, who said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. That ought to be the longing of every Christian, no matter your level of suffering and in light of what we face in this world. God himself is where we find our rest and contentment. So he cursed himself, he laments his life, and now thirdly, he longs for his own death. He doesn't curse God and die, he just wants to die. He is losing hope and believes there is no point in living. Why give him life in the first place? Listen to his longing. Why is life given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man 
whose way is hidden. Meaning there is no purpose or meaning in his life whom God has hedged in. Notice the irony. uh, Because Satan told God back in chapter 1 that the reason why Job served the Lord was because he put a hedge around him. But now Job claims that God has hedged him in, in misery. Suffering leads to isolation. Now, this is the sad reality of the course of life. As we get older, we become more and more isolated as we're not able to do all the things we used to do. We go from seeing the world to seeing our country to our neighborhood to an occasional walk around the block to being homebound to being bedridden. It just happened much faster for Job. Job went from being renowned among his peers, a great man with a great family and many possessions, to a man with nothing but a piece of broken pottery, isolated from the world he once knew, stricken with sickness. He wants to know why, but he finds the only answer in death. Then he gives his reasons for this longing. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. How many of us spend time thinking of the possibility of losing everything and how fearful that day is. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. But trouble comes there again. No rest, only trouble. And he cries out much like the people of God cried out in Egypt when they were enslaved. He cries out with a lament, much like the psalmist in Psalm 22. Or like Jeremiah in Lamentations, or when Baruch said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I have no rest. But the thing to notice is that in each of those cases, God answered their Lament. So Job wants an answer for his suffering. And we all wonder at times, is God listening? Why am I suffering at this very moment? Now this does not sound like the same Job from chapters 1 and 2. And it would be easy for us to judge and condemn Job. But we ought to remind ourselves that this is commonplace for many believers Though oftentimes it goes unspoken for fear of ridicule from so-called friends. I mean, just read ahead in the book of Job. Also, we should remind ourselves of the gospel truth that we find, and that is, we are not living our best lives now. The best is yet to come. And although there is much suffering in this life, for the Christian, as long as we're living, there's always hope in the future because our future hope is found in God, our creator. We're on the side of God, the creator, even when we feel that there is no hope. Listen to Paul. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The future for the believer is always glory with God. What is more hopeful than that? Job couldn't see that, but that is what we bring with us to those who are suffering. 
And the hope of the gospel comes out here in a few ways. First and foremost, God is the one who gave Job life in the first place. So Job must deal with the existence of God. Believer and unbeliever alike, eventually you're going to have to deal with the existence of God. He created all things and placed you where you are in the circumstances that you find yourselves in. And God is there. How will you respond to him? Secondly, Job is not happy with the way things are. That's good news. That is good news. Remember, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. He is restless because he looks around and he doesn't see God. He looks around and it is not the way God intended things to be. The world follows the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. There is sin everywhere, not only in himself, but also he is a victim of sin as his enemies stole all of his possessions. Disease and death is everywhere, and one day death will come to all of us. Who wouldn't lament? Our problem is we don't lament. And we are oftentimes comfortable, not content. Those are two different things. We are oftentimes comfortable, that is, giving hearty approval indirectly to the way things are. But the mistake would have been if Job renounced God altogether. But does he? That's the question. Does he renounce God altogether? Does Job call it quits? The fact that he even laments is a sign of hope for Job. If there was no hope for Job, then why ask why? Asking why is not bad in itself. And while we shouldn't excuse any of Job's sins, but when you consider the entire story of Job, God is listening, and he will uphold and preserve Job to the end. What Job needs to remember is the character of God. He may have had God's character mistaken. We forget often, That God is all merciful. And his steadfast love endures forever. So God was listening. And he will uphold Job to the end. As he will with you. If you believe. Thirdly. Job's dark lament. Foreshadows an even greater darkness. Jesus the son of God. Would lament in agony as he prayed. In the garden of Gethsemane. As his soul was very sorrowful. Even to death. To the point that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And even more so as he hung on the cross. It was dark for three hours. Then he cried out quoting the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now just like we would ask, why does the righteous suffer? We can also ask in that case, why did Jesus suffer? Now that we have an answer to. And it is, he suffered to save you from your sins, death, and Satan. Job's darkness foreshadows the darkness and suffering of the cross. Because that is what the story of Job is about. It is about the cross. But even at the cross, there was hope. There was the hope of the resurrection. As we will see in the rest of the story of Job, there is hope. And as we will see in the rest of your story, even in this life, there is always hope with God and his gospel. Amen.